Back in 1816, Mount Tambora in Indonesia erupted. This one was what scientists call a big one. It was a big one. The cloud of ash from that volcanic eruption covered half the globe. So much so that that year, 1816, was known to many, especially those in Europe, as the year without summer. The ash was so, the ash cloud was so thick, it was like the sun wasn't shining. And it was that summer that, incidentally, uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, so no surprise there. Uh, But uh, her husband, Lord Byron, wrote a poem also called Darkness. The opening stanza of this poem, I think, powerfully captures the bleak reality of darkness. Listen to Lord Byron's words here. He says, I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkly in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day. Darkness is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for how sin impacts our world. And boy, isn't that just right? You know, I, I read that, those lines from Byron's poem, and it just feels right. I mean, not seeing the stars, feeling like the earth is just this wandering chunk of rock in the universe with no direction. Morning comes, and morning goes, and morning comes, and yet there's no day, there's no light. There's a bleakness to it that is, I think, fitting when we think about the effect of sin on our world. As we talk about people dying, as we talk about serious illness, as we think about uh, others' sin and how it impacts us, relational difficulties because people sin against us, or we think about our own sin as we make poor decisions and we dishonor God, we worship false gods, and so we hurt others and we certainly hurt ourselves. It's not a stretch to say that every day, short of the Lord's return, we experience darkness in this world. And maybe, just maybe, you feel like you're just on a rock hurling aimlessly through space. Morning comes and morning goes, and morning comes and morning goes, but it never seems like day. Well, if that's your struggle today, I have good news for you. From Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 25. In this passage, Matthew describes the actual launch of Jesus' public ministry. He summarizes what Jesus was doing in the region of Galilee. But as he does so, he takes opportunity to once again underscore the significance of the sum total of Jesus' ministry. Specifically here, Matthew will teach us and show us that Jesus is light and Jesus is life. That Jesus is light and life. And as he writes about the Messiah shining in a particular place at a particular time, he does so not only to explain it, but also to offer real encouragement to you and to me as we deal with the darkness on a day-in, day-out basis. 
I know that there are many here this morning who are struggling. If you're struggling, you're in the right place. Not because we can do something about it, but because Jesus himself is the light who shines in the darkness. And that picture, that biblical metaphor, that identity of the Messiah being light and life is not just meant to be some kind of greeting card footnote, right? That, oh, hey, you know, I hope you're doing better. Jesus is light and life, you know, that kind of thinking. But actually to offer real concrete encouragement and hope in the midst of the challenges and difficulties that we face. If you're struggling this morning, this passage is for you. And if it happens that you're not struggling this morning, you will be. You will be. Because guess what? Sickness is coming for you. Or someone you love. And others in their sin will hurt you. It's going to happen. And no doubt, you will hurt others. And so, lest we lose our bearings, and certainly lest we fail to trust the Lord, God has gifted us Matthew 4, 12 to 25. A beautiful summary here of the launch of Jesus' ministry meant to encourage us. So let's, let's dive in, let's unpack what's going on here, and let's be encouraged here as we think about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. We're picking it up in verse 12, right after the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil. Presumably here, we pick up some of these details from the Gospel of John. Jesus stayed in the region where John the baptizer was ministering for a bit, but ultimately that didn't last. Watch verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4. We'll look at 12 and 13. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So let me just show you this here laid out on the map so we can um, get our bearings. This is the, the bigger picture of Israel during the time of Jesus after the death of Herod the Great. So when Jesus was actually ministering, this was the layout. And Israel and the surrounding area was basically divided up into chunks between some of Herod's sons. And so you have Archelaus uh, was there, and then later there would be a procreator, procurator, namely Pontius Pilate is the one that everybody knows. Uh, but Archelaus only lived uh, for about uh, 10 years after his dad died. You had another son of Herod the Great named Antipas who got this chunk in Perea, which was where John the Baptizer was ministering. And he was also responsible for Galilee and the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, among other tribal areas up there. So, and then uh, you have the Decapolis, which was a 10-town area. We'll hear more about that later. And, and I'm not going to go into all the political details here. But Jesus here, after John the baptizer was arrested, he was arrested because Antipas didn't like him. And he didn't like his message. So that's why uh, John the baptizer was arrested. And so then Jesus transitions back up to Galilee. And instead of being in Nazareth over here, he moves his headquarters, uh, his, uh, his ministry uh, headquarters to Capernaum. And let me just show you that a little bit more closely so we can zoom in a little bit. So here's again Jordan River. Baptism happens down here, and then Jesus transitions back up to Galilee, leaving Nazareth here to go to the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. One more. Let's zoom in one more time. And then here, yeah, this is the Sea of Galilee. So uh, Capernaum is right here, all right? It was like uh, the big, not the biggest, but a big administrative center. It had a customs post. It had a centurion, so it was big enough to warrant that. Almost exclusively Jewish community. Um, T Tiberius was the big Roman administrative center there and kind of a key crossroads. But Capernaum was the Jewish kind of capital 
around the Lake of Galilee uh, or the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's basically what you need to understand. And then I, can, I think I can show you a picture maybe. Maybe not. Yeah, there you go. So uh, this is ancient Capernaum right there. So the lake hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years and because we have the archaeological ruins and um, total commercial here. But if you go with me to Israel, we'll go there and we'll hang out and have lunch. So uh, it's great. Okay, let's, let's get back into the text here, verse 12. So when he had heard that John had been arrested, uh, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in, the, in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sorry, on to verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You note immediately here that Matthew explains the geographical move. Okay, so from Nazareth to Capernaum, right? That's the, that's the practical move. But as he does so, he, he can't get, get one minute past that before he says, actually, this has prophetic significance to the Old Testament. And Matthew has already quoted so many Old Testament passages in the Advent narrative. And even last week, Jesus himself quoting from Deuteronomy. Well, now here, Matthew says, it's not a mistake that Jesus does his, his bulk of his ministry in Galilee. Because this fulfills what we read in the, the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, you'll buy, your Bibles will note, Isaiah 8, 23 to 9, 1. That's what he quotes here. In 8.23, we read the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, that's just basically a statement of places. And Matthew interprets that to be identifying the, the significant place where the Messiah will minister. It's not a surprise, by the way, that he quotes from Isaiah 8 and 9, because he'd already quoted from Isaiah 7 in the Advent narrative. So that, that chunk of Isaiah was really kind of, uh, I think, ringing in Matthew's ears as he's recording here, the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because it describes the impact of the Messiah on the dark world. That's exactly where he goes. Note verse 16. Who cares about the tribe of Zebulun or Naphtali? Why do I care about this land, the Galilee of the Gentiles? So what? Verse 16. Well, the people who live in darkness, the people in Galilee specifically here, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. If you just pause there, Matthew says to the, to the region of Galilee, he says, listen, I know that, that maybe you've forgotten it, but back in Isaiah 8 and 9, there's this prophecy tucked away that says that Galilee, a region known for difficulty, struggling, in fact, it was often a, a place of warfare because of the Jezreel Valley, there often massive armies did warfare there, so they were all, all, often conquered, right? Um, Galilee, that was at this point in history, kind of the, the footnote in Israel. They had been taken into exile before the southern kingdom, and they were viewed as uh, basically half-breeds by those who lived in the south. In, in the area of Jerusalem and Judea. You know, no, nothing good came from Nazareth, and pretty much you could extend that to Galilee in general. They were looked down upon. The key leaders were in Jerusalem, right? The, the most religious, pure people lived near Jerusalem and in Judea. So Galilee was an afterthought. They were forgotten, always conquered, right? It just kind of always the footnote, never significant, never important, and certainly facing significant practical suffering, the suffering that comes from relational conflict within families and friendships breaking down, and no doubt, a lot of sickness going around. In a pre-modern era, right, when life expectancy is not nearly as long as it is today, you can imagine people getting sick and the frequency with which you have to deal with death and just how hard that is. 
All that is going on, maybe even more than normal, perhaps, in Galilee. So when he says, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light, Matthew's saying, it is not a mistake that the Messiah shows up and goes to work in Galilee. Because Isaiah prophesied it. Because in God's design, in redemptive history, there was a particular chunk of real estate where he was going to shine his light in the first advent of the Messiah. Those people who are described here as living in darkness, they saw Jesus. And here Matthew says, Jesus, just like Isaiah says, as the Messiah, he's the light. He goes on in verse 16 to say, for those living in the land of the shadow of death, I think probably the physical suffering is on the front foot here in Matthew's mind, and we'll see why in just a moment. But the fact is, as they dealt with the reality of suffering in a broken world, and especially as they dealt with physical suffering and death, he says, yeah, but those living in the shadow of death, this is quoting Isaiah, but Matthew says, on those people, light has dawned. It's no longer morning after morning after morning after morning with no day. The light has dawned, he says. And then note verse 17, which fits with 12 to 16. From then on, Jesus began to, what does your Bible say? Preach. Listen, preaching is good. (laughs) Preaching is good. Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is Matthew's summary of Jesus' preaching in Galilee. And really boiling it down here to just the the bottom line. But he says, Jesus' big idea was simple. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent means acknowledge your sin and turn from your sin to me. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come near How? Because the Messiah has come near. Because the light is shining in the darkness. Because Jesus has arrived, he's basically saying, I have thrown open the doors to the kingdom of heaven. So come on in. Repent and turn to me. In other times, repent and believe. Believe the gospel. We read in Mark 1.15, Mark's summary of this same, you know, teaching time of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. So repent, turn from your sin, and believe. Why? Because the, the light has dawned on the kingdom of heaven and that the Messiah has come. You see here, Matthew, picking up on what Isaiah had said in chapters 8 and 9, he says, Jesus, as the Messiah, Jesus is light and life. He is light and life. And this is meant to provide specific and concrete relief to those living in darkness. To those living in the shadow of death. So to the hopeless, to the struggling, to the forgotten, to the discouraged, to the betrayed, to the abandoned, to those grieving and mourning. Light and life has come. And Matthew just says, you just... We can't just say, oh, Jesus launched his ministry without tying it back to the Old Testament and showing how actually Jesus showing up means the kingdom of heaven had arrived and that was the the beginning of the arrival of his kingdom in reality. Here we go. It's, It's game time. And that means hope for the hopeless. It means encouragement for the discouraged. It means those who feel forgotten and betrayed are now remembered and valued And yes, you may not have a strong family. You may not have the career you want. All your life circumstances may not be going the way you prefer, but you have a home in the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is light and life. The contrast is put forward by Matthew because, frankly, so often when we're struggling with the darkness, we feel like that poem from Byron. We just feel like we're just stuck in the dark and we can't get out. And Matthew says, just so we're all clear, when Jesus showed up and he began to preach, calling people to repent, right? when he did that, he came as light and life. Light for those who feel like they're wandering and groping in the darkness. Now, as Matthew explains this, he, he explains it in terms of not just what Jesus did, but how people were called to respond to Jesus in three specific ways. The first specific way we're supposed to respond to Jesus is when he preaches, repent. When, when we see Jesus preaching, the call is to repent, to turn from our sin, turning from darkness to, to the light, turning from the darkness of sin to the light of Jesus as the Messiah. So this is totally in line with John the Baptizer's message, if you were paying attention from a few weeks ago, because John the Baptizer's message was repent. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is almost here. And then Jesus is like, I'm here. You should still repent. And you should turn from your sin and turn to me. That's the call when Jesus preaches repent. So turning from darkness to light, turning from the darkness of sin to the light of Jesus as the Messiah means today what it meant then. We turn from our own idolatry. There's a calling to acknowledge sin and then to turn away from it and reject it. Some of the words for repentance in the New Testament are very visual terms. They, they picture the turning. One of them is used of a ship changing course. You know, one's like an about face, you know, marching. Like, that's how you act towards your sin. I was going this way. I was pursuing darkness. I was living in darkness. But now I turn from that sinful pursuit. And now I pursue the Lord. Right now I've trusted in Christ. That, that's a function of God's grace in our lives. But at the same time, it's also a command. When Jesus was preaching, he says, hey, you, repent. Repent from your idolatry. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your drunkenness to me. Turn from your deceiving and manipulative ways to me. Turn from your sexual sin and your pornography and your homosexuality and turn to me. Turn from your selfishness and your gossip and your gluttony and your pride or your anxiety and turn to me. Why? Not so he can tell you, this is what you got to do to get a place in my kingdom. But precisely because he is the healing for our sin. He says, you turn to me because all that's darkness, but I'm light. And those people living in Galilee, although they were living in darkness, they saw the great light. Because they got to witness Jesus. And get to hear him preach. And they heard him say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. I wonder, do you need to repent this morning? There's really two phases of repentance. Practically speaking, all, everyone who's born is born a sinner, right? So, so everyone must repent and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That's how you become a Christian. That's your initial moment of repentance. Maybe you're here this morning and you can remember that moment when you first trusted in Christ. Some of us trusted Christ when we were very young, and so it's hard for us to pinpoint an exact moment. But nonetheless, there was a day where before that we hadn't repented of our sin, and after that we had repented of our sin. And if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are living Byron's poem. You are hurtling on a rock through space aimlessly without hope. 
and every morning will continue to be darkness because there really is only one light. Jesus is light and life. And when he preaches, the response that we are called to is to repent. And so I would invite you this morning and encourage you to respond to Jesus' command to repent and to do just that, to turn from your sin and to trust in him. But repentance is not just about your initial conversion. It's also a continued aspect of the Christian life. We learn this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, or, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, where Christians are pictured as and called to continue to repent of your sin. I wish it was so simple if we just turned from our sin once, and that was it, and we were done with it, right? But the fact is, we still struggle. And so the lifestyle of the Christian, as we grow in faith, is a continued lifestyle of repentance from our sin. Where we, every time it rears its ugly head, we say, no, I, I call that sin. It's wrong. And I turn away from that. And I turn to Christ. And I ask for forgiveness. And I know I've received forgiveness because of his finished work on the cross. But the Christian life is a life of continued repentance. And I would venture to guess that for most of us here, we claim to be followers of Jesus. But I would guess that because of the busyness of our lives, and because we don't often have a lot of downtime, it's fairly rare for us to, to repent to the Lord. To just take time and say, Lord, I, I, I sinned against you this week. You confess what it is, but you repent. You turn from it. You say, Lord, I sinned against you and I was wrong. And I know, Jesus, you are the light and the life. And I know that you not only call us to repent, but Lord Jesus, you provide the means of forgiveness and grace moving forward because you died for my sins and rose from the dead. See, we're not, we're not repenting and turning to a human resource. We're not repenting and certainly not turning and relying on our own efforts to make ourselves better and, and kind of clean up our act. No, we're turning from our sin to Jesus, who is light and life, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And I just wonder maybe this morning, if maybe you need to ask the question, where do I need to repent today? Where do I need to change? Jesus is light and life, and when he preaches... We're called to repent. As he continues to minister, though, he immediately calls his first disciples. And again, this is kind of about how we respond to Jesus as light and life. Watch verse 18 as we continue on. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. We can do better than that. Sorry, CSB. And I will make you fishermen. Now, let me just show you what this looked like, okay? Because it's kind of cool. This is, this is a picture uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Fairly windy day, actually. It doesn't usually look like, quite like that. Um, right near Capernaum. This is not exactly the, probably the spot, but we're in the neighborhood. And, and again, coastline has changed a bit in the last 2,000 years. But we're in the, basically the same zone. And so you can imagine uh, a couple of guys uh, running their family fishing business right there off Capernaum. Fishermen were not the bottom of the barrel uh, in, um, in uh, economically speaking in the Mediterranean world, especially in this part of the Mediterranean world. They would have been upwardly mobile, we could say, <laughs> using our modern technology. They, they had resources. In this particular case... Uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew had a family business, and they actually worked together with another family, James and John and the Zebedee family, and they kind of had a deal. And, you know, they, they, were, they were fishermen, so they caught fish, they exported the fish. Fish was the primary, uh, primary part of the diet in uh, the first century in Israel. So that was the main thing people ate. 
So they were obviously making some pretty good money doing that, okay? So the, and they weren't like ridiculously wealthy, but they were certainly not the poorest in the area. So Jesus is walking along uh, the, the, the coastline of the Sea of Galilee, and here he sees these guys, and he says, hey, here's the deal. <laughs> Again, verse, uh, verse 19, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fishers of men, or I will make you fish for people. Now, I make a big deal about that translation in verse 19 because he's not just calling them to a new activity. He's calling them to a transformation of their identity. He's not just saying, hey, come do this thing of evangelism. He's saying, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fundamentally change who you are. He goes on, literally goes on, verse 20. They're walking along. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These are known in the Gospel of John as the sons of thunder, or as Kate calls them, the thunder brothers. My daughter Kate calls them the thunder brothers. But uh, yeah, here they are, James and John. And so they were in a boat, verse 21, with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now let's just unpack something that's repeated in both of those scenes, okay, with, with Peter and Andrew and also with James and John. Verse 20, Peter and Andrew, Jesus calls them to follow him. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, James and John, Jesus calls them to follow him. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew is teaching us something about discipleship. He's teaching us something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is it. Jesus is the light and the life. Jesus is light and life. When he preaches, we repent. But where he leads, we follow. Where he leads, we follow. It's noteworthy that the calling to discipleship here for Peter and Andrew, as well as for James and John, that the calling to discipleship was a calling that required sacrifice. When he says they left their nets, he means they left their nets. They vocationally ceased to be fishermen and, and, and were something else now. Followers of Jesus, fishers of people, excuse me, they ceased to be, yeah, they ceased to be fishermen and other fishers of men, right? And so with James and John, they're in the boat with their father. They leave their boat, capital resource, you with me? Right? They leave their father. They're not abandoning him, but their relationship to their family has changed, and now they leave their father, and now they will follow Jesus. Now, this was common for rabbis. Rabbis would call students, okay, in the first century in Israel, and as they did so, those students would be expected to walk with the rabbi and be taught with, by the rabbi and so on and so forth. So this wasn't unusual in the calling aspect of it, but the degree of sacrifice and the nature of the transformation was unheard of. This was totally different in that sense. Same idea. They're like, okay, I'm going to follow this, this rabbi now. I'm going to follow this teacher. But no, not just I'm going to follow this teacher. I'm going to follow this teacher. Even if it means a change in my career, even if it means an adjustment to my education goals, even if it means my relationship to my family has to change, even if it means my relationship to certain friends has to change, I now follow Jesus. So now I'm different. Brothers and sisters, where he leads, we follow. You can ask the question, am I following Jesus? 
Again, this is not an, a question about an activity. This is a question about identity, right? Am I following Jesus? Meaning, have I been transformed into a follower of Christ? Faith in Christ is not an addition to our life. It actually is our life. And again, this is where sometimes we, we just get it wrong. You know, people sometimes will pitch Christianity. And they'll say, oh yeah, you, you should become a Christian. It will make your life better. It will make your life better. But it's not an addition to your life. Like I have this many kids or grandkids and I have these pursuits and I have this stuff. And also I'm going to add to that, I'm a Christian and that belongs on Sunday mornings over here. No, no. It's not like, oh, I put it on Sunday mornings. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means a radical transformation of your identity. You now are primarily a follower of Jesus and everything else second. Everything else is actually better when you, when you live in light of your reality, live in light of the reality of who you are in Christ, but, but it's no longer your primary identity. Now your primary identity is, I am a follower of Jesus. These guys could not easily come back and pick up their careers. Now they will, in some sense, do that a little bit. And because the families kept the businesses running and all that, so it wasn't like a total like, I'm just out of here, forget you. No, that's not it. But it was a tremendous sacrifice for them to follow Jesus. And Matthew records it for us, and he shows that it's the same for, for Peter and Andrew as it was for James and John, because he wants you to know that this is what following Jesus entails. It entails sacrificial discipleship. One commentator said it this way. He said, disciples prioritize faithfulness to Jesus over any other relationship. I wonder, could you say that this morning? that you are prioritizing faithfulness to Jesus over any other relationship. Again, for most of us, it doesn't mean you have to abandon your career. But being a Christian in your workplace certainly means it will change how you think about your work. It'll definitely change how you go about your work. Are you willing to pay the cost? Sometimes it's just the little things, isn't it? If you start to be known as the person at your workplace who won't laugh at certain jokes or won't use certain vocabulary, right? All of a sudden, you might get labeled, and then it's going to get a little weird. Or in following Jesus, are you willing to take heat in your degree program? I know people who have pursued doctorates, very, very smart people, and in the course of defending their research and their work, which had nothing to do with religious work, they were actually called out on their faith in Jesus. It became an issue that they believed that there was a creator of the universe and that impacted their study on fill-in-the-blank, making their lives very difficult, and in some cases making advancement in their career almost impossible. But I wonder, are you willing to pursue Jesus in costly discipleship when it means you have to change your friends, or at least change how you handle your friends? You know, friends have a tremendous amount of influence over our lives. And when you start to follow Jesus, some friends will influence you back to darkness. And so part of following Jesus means I leave those friendships. Not that I don't care about those people, but my relationship, my relationship with them has changed. And now I have to create new boundaries. I have to create a, a new uh, kind of modus operandi, a new way of functioning with them. Because I don't want to be influenced back to the darkness. Maybe I have to have a sit-down talk with them and explain, listen, I'm not who I was anymore. Anyway, I can't, I can't go out with you like we used to and do the things that we used to do together. Certainly, it, it will mean a change in how you handle your family. It'll be an improvement 
for sure, because as a follower of Jesus, right, you, you'll be equipped by God to deal with your family in a godly way. But your family may not like that you're a follower of Jesus. They may not want an extreme Jesus follower in the clan. Sometimes it makes them feel guilty. Sometimes it's just because they don't understand what being a Christian is. They might think you're in a cult now that you're following Jesus or whatever. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus means a change in the very fabric of our social identity. But here Matthew says, he's light and life. And when he says, follow me, you drop your nets, you get out of your boat, and you say goodbye to your family, and you follow him. That's the picture of discipleship here. So if you're going to ask the question, am I following Jesus? You're really asking, does my life show signs that I have trusted him? Am I obeying Jesus? Am I submitting to Jesus? Some of us, it's just funny, we're really pro-Jesus, but we're really also a lot about being spiritual backseat drivers in our life. You know what a backseat driver is? Yeah, this is, this is, when I talk about darkness, this is a darkness in our world, okay? The backseat driver, right? If you're not familiar with this phenomenon, it's when you're driving and there's someone in the backseat who is not driving and has no access to the controls of the vehicle who will give you verbal feedback as to where you should be going, how you should be driving, what you should be doing, right? Because they know or whatever. And I am not going to name names in our family about who that is. No comments about that at all. I can feel heat coming from the front, from the front row. So I can't even look. I'm just looking down. Spiritual backseat drivers, what do we do? Jesus says, we're going here. The spiritual backseat driver says, eh, hold on. Are you sure you want to take, you know, Main Street? Like, let, we can go around. Jesus, I want to go here. I would rather go this way. And when Jesus says, you know, we're going this way, the response of the disciple, the response of faith, says, yes, Lord, let's go. So we, we see it in practical matters, right? Where Jesus says, I'm calling you to a new standard of purity in how you pursue, for example, romantic relationships and sexuality. And, and Jesus says, I'm going this way. And you're going, well, but the culture went this way. So I'm just, I'm going to go, but this is what I really want. And everybody else is way worse. So I'm just going to take the long way around. But Jesus says, I'm going this way. Follow me. Or again, vocabulary use, right? Or how we think about the purpose of our interaction with family or the purpose of our career. And again, all the while, Jesus is saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. But are you following him? When, when we fail to follow Jesus, we disobey his commands or we ignore his commands, right? We could disobey his commands by doing something different or we could ignore his commands, but this was just the beginning. He's, he's light and life. When he preaches, repent. And when he, where he leads, well, we follow. There's more to it, though. It's really just the beginning. Watch verse 18. Excuse me, watch verse 23. As Matthew continues. Now, this is more just a general summary of this whole era of Jesus' ministry. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. If you pause in verse 23, there's three descriptions there of what Jesus was doing. The first, teaching in their synagogues. What did he do? He went to the synagogues, and he opened the scriptures with them, and he said, let me, tell, let me explain to you what this means. We have a great example of this in Luke 4, 
where Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, right? So Jesus was teaching the, the Jewish community in Israel. He was teaching the Jewish community about what it is that the, the Bible teaches about him. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom, preaching the gospel. Good news is gospel. This is what you do. You believe the gospel. So Jesus was proclaiming that message that they were called to believe. And in addition to all that, he was going around healing, and it's interesting the language here, every disease and sickness among the people. Now, this is a summary of Jesus' ministry. So the point is not necessarily that he healed every single sick person, but in his ministry, as they brought sick people to them, he healed them. There was not one sickness or disease they brought to him. He was like, that one stumps me. I can't deal with that. Now, that language, though, picks up some language from the Old Testament. There's a prophecy of the Messiah being the healer in Isaiah 35, and no doubt that's in play here for sure. But we also have some language about every disease and affliction that's picked up possibly from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and also from Proverbs, excuse me, from Psalm 103. But in all of this, Matthew says he's not just light, he's light and he's life. He fulfills the messianic promises, which means he has brought the arrival of the kingdom of God, which means the removal of darkness. And part of the removal of darkness here is the healing of disease, physical relief, not just preaching and teaching. So it's not brain surgery, verse 24. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Probably Syria here refers to the broader area, that region of Israel and beyond. But the word got out, as no doubt it would, there is a preacher in Galilee who is straight up healing people. And in a pre-modern society, when you've got a loved one, or you are the one who's hurting, who's got that condition that no, no home remedy can cure, you're paralyzed, you're having seizures, right? Long-term sickness, long-term illness, continued suffering, no doubt cancer. You would make the trip. You would go see this preacher and find out what's going on. And so verse 25, as a result of the healing, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now, there's maybe a cautionary note there in verse 25, because Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they followed Jesus. This crowd follows Jesus, but they won't follow him, ultimately. Most of them will cease to follow him. And maybe Matthew's just acknowledging there by using the same term. Maybe he's just acknowledging, hey, listen, just so we're all clear, not everyone who claims faith has faith. Not everybody who says they're following will follow. And maybe he's just kind of giving you a wink this morning and saying, hey, what about you? Which one are you? Are you just in it for the benefits? Or are you ready to really follow? Jesus is light and life. When he preaches, repent. Where he leads, we follow. And what he teaches, we believe. We believe the gospel. As is described here, Jesus as he preached the good news of the kingdom, we believe what Jesus has said. And that's why in Matthew 28, when he calls us to make and mature disciples, go therefore make disciples of all nations, part of the making of disciples is teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. 
It's not like, okay, I signed the Jesus card, now I'm good. Like, no, you follow Jesus, so now we follow Jesus. So we pour over his word, and we, we study it, and we seek to understand it and believe it and live according to it. Absolutely, what he teaches, we believe. We receive his word. We don't create his word, and we certainly don't edit his word. Now, what are we going to do about all this healing? You read in Acts, and the apostles had some measure of healing in their ministry, but then it kind of stops. Read the epistles. Healing is not the mark of a healthy church. It's not the hallmark of faith. In fact, it's almost absent from every epistle in the New Testament. It's referenced a little bit in 1 Corinthians. There's not much else about healing in the New Testament. So the question is, well, what are we supposed to think about this healing? Why did Jesus heal? In fact, it's a little sobering to think about, but just know this, that all these people that Jesus healed— they later got sick again and died. And so what, what, what's the point of healing him? Jesus is saying something about his arrival, the arrival of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 35, when the Messiah shows up, there's going to be healing. The lame are going to dance. It's going to be glory days. And Jesus, by his healing, he says, he says, I just want you to know that this darkness, that I have come to deal with the problem. I am dealing with the problem of sin. And so I am removing temporarily the consequence of sin in your life, this physical suffering, just to show you that that's what I can do. And frankly, it's what I will do forever. See, the, the temporary healing in the Gospels is a down payment on our permanent and eternal healing in the resurrection. So it's a little sneak peek, a little foreshadowing of what we'll receive in Christ. And because of that, it gives us hope even when just temporarily we have to suffer. Again, this, we've got death this week in our church family. We've got so many people facing serious illness. We've got the, the cancer battles going on. And as all this is going on, our hope is not for a short-term quick fix. Our hope is that Jesus is light and life. And because he's life, because he rose from the dead... Because he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, the Messiah's work, we look forward to a day where there's no longer any death, there is no more cancer, there's no more physical suffering, there's none of that. Why? Because Jesus has removed the source of that problem. And that problem, the source of that problem is sin. And so that's our ultimate hope. Jesus here is saying quite clearly by this healing ministry, I came to remove sin and its consequences. And how does he do that? Well, we have to keep reading in Matthew. But where does he go? He goes to the cross for us. He dies for the penalty of sin, but he conquers sin and death and resurrection. That's why it matters that he heals people. It relieves them of their afflictions. So this helps us because it gives us confidence in God's plan, and it, it provides hope when we're hurting. We know that this must pass. It cannot last forever. And if you're not suffering this morning, or you're not being afflicted, you just need to make sure to note this because you will need it at some point. You'll need the reminder that Jesus healed every disease and affliction that he faced. That there wasn't one that stumped him that he couldn't deal with. And one day, when you and I are raised to new life in him, we'll be raised to glorious, perfect, glorious perfection. We'll all be slightly taller. Right? Okay. No. No knees have to be replaced on the new earth. <laughs> no, no hips. There's no 
There's no need for bone scans to see if the cancer spread. No, no blood testing we'll have to do. There's no genetic proclivity to a particular kind of suffering, right? Sin and death will be no more. That's part of the proclamation of the gospel, and it's part of the demonstration here where Jesus is showing us who he is and what he has brought in his kingdom. I guess the question is, do we believe that? Sometimes Christians get sideways on the healing thing where they can turn healing into, into the focus of Jesus' ministry. It's not the primary focus of his ministry. It's just one of the ways he shows his identity as light and life. But if we, if we glorify that, and sometimes people, you know, they, they'll advertise healing ministries and all that because, again, we can, we can mistake what the whole point is. The point is not the healing. The healing shows the greater reality of who Jesus is and what he ultimately will bring. And often those promises of quick, you know, kind of uh, pseudo-miraculous healings prove to be false because they're not Jesus, frankly, and they've mistaken the nature of what he's come to do. You ask the question, you want to know, are you relating rightly to Jesus? You ask these three questions. When Jesus preaches, do I repent? Where Jesus leads, do I follow? And what he teaches, do I believe? There's your question. My friend, John Newton, you remember John Newton, the slave ship captain turned pastor back in the 1600s, 1700s? He wrote Amazing Grace. He said this about Jesus' ministry and light. He said, The doctrine of the cross pours a light on every subject and circumstance in which we are concerned. John Newton says, Jesus' light, it shines down on every single aspect of our lives. Whatever we're facing, whatever circumstance we're in, he shines his light down on that circumstance. I wonder, are you shielding some of your life from that light? Maybe you don't want to think about how Jesus relates to your family and how you, how you act in your family. Maybe you don't really want to engage with what does it mean to be a Christian in your workplace or at your school. Are you kind of like, I, I, I want to follow Jesus over here, but not over here, right? And you're kind of shielding some portions of your life. Can I just encourage you that there's nothing good about the darkness? And it's not a mistake that in our glorious home on the new earth, there will be no darkness. There will be no night. And we won't have to rely on the sun or sunlight reflecting off the moon or stars. But Jesus himself is our light. Because he's light and he's life. Will we repent? Will we follow? Will we believe? Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us respond to Jesus rightly. Lord, we thank you so much for this part of your word. We thank you for the summary of your ministry in Galilee. We pray that you would help us to respond to you rightly. We pray that we would see here the fact that you are light and life. And there's great encouragement for us here, Lord, especially as we suffer, as we face so many different kinds of afflictions. And I pray especially for those in our church family who are really hurting today, physically, emotionally, just having a difficult time, Lord. And I pray that they would, that they would look to you for encouragement and see you as light and life. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you, to repent when you preach, Lord, to turn away from our sin, to not coddle it, to not excuse it, but to turn from it to you. 
We thank you for dying for our sins and rising from the dead so we can be forgiven and we can have confidence as we turn to you that we will receive uh, acceptance and grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow where you lead. Lord, prepare us to leave our nets, leave the boat, leave the family if we must, and to follow you, to be willing to pay the cost of discipleship. And Lord, we pray that we would believe the gospel, that we would believe everything that you have taught and passed down to us through the apostles in your word. Lord, we pray that we would follow this teaching. And even as we face difficulties, Lord, we pray that we would see, even in your healing ministry, Lord, this beautiful foretaste of what is to come in our eternal home with you. Because you are the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. You do fulfill Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, Isaiah 35, Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 103. Lord, we praise you that you are light and life. Help us to respond to you with repentance, by following you, and with faith. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.